are uh, walking through the book of Malachi. We have this week and next, and we will find our way through. This morning we are talking about robbing God, ripping off the Almighty. Uh, such a topic. But there it is, right there in Scripture. You know, they, they always say, you know, Beware Church is always talking about money. Uh, and I always say, Beware Church, it never talks about money. Because the Scripture talks about money. God does, Old Testament, New Testament. Jesus does, and so we do. And we come across it. And here we, we come across it in His Word. We talk about it. Uh, and God, in this disputation, comes to His church uh, and challenges the Old Testament church in their giving. So here then, the Word of God, we're in Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 to 12. Hear the Word of God. For I, the Lord, do not change, and therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. For the days, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes, and you've not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you. Says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet, you are robbing God. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and your contributions, you are cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord. Father in heaven, we have gathered to you this morning to give you our hearts and worship, to lift our voices, to lift our prayers, to lift our hearts, to give ourselves to you afresh, to know you and to love you. And even now, would you speak to us? The word is living and active, sharp as a double-edged sword, dividing soul and mind. And even now, Father, we ask that you would speak your word to us afresh in a way that calls us to obedience, calls us to love, calls us to serve. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. When I was guessing now about 12, I was not a Christian, and uh, my parents would sometimes drop me and my friends at the mall. So they had dropped me and a few of my friends at the mall, and we had kind of split up doing a couple different things. I was down in the store at one end of the mall. There was a store, I forget the name of it now. It's kind of like Target. I don't think it even exists anymore. Uh, but it was a store like Target, and I was wandering around. Uh, and I was in the uh, school supplies, I guess, and all the office supply stuff. And I saw this really nice pen. Uh, and I wanted it. So I stole it. I took it, I put it in my pocket, in my jacket, uh, and I, I headed for the door. And as I head for the door, uh, before I could make my escape, I was head off by a security guard uh, who asked me what I had in my pocket. There was an awkward moment. Don't ask me why 
12-year-old Robert needed a really nice pen, but he wanted it. So eventually I showed him the pen. He said, fine, come with me. And I found myself in the security office calling my parents, and my parents had to come and get me and explain the whole thing that I was caught shoplifting and I was, you know, it was embarrassing and shameful, you know, having your parents come down and the whole thing because I knew it was wrong. I was I mean, I was old enough to know at that point. Now I'm a little bit older. You might say I'm And I'm a Christian, and I, you know, these are things that, um, you know, I would never even think of stealing a pen. It wouldn't even, I would just never, it's my, I have a settled conviction that it's just, it's wrong, and I just wouldn't do it. I don't want to steal from anybody. I don't want to rob anybody's house, bank, or anything like this. There's a settled conviction of the wrongness to take something that belongs to someone else. And so it is a little, it's probably as startling as it is sobering to hear God say in verse 8, you are robbing you are taking what is mine. You are taking from your God. It's really a shocking statement. If you think about it in whatever context you want to put it, when God says, you're stealing from It's just unthinkable to steal a pen from a car dealer. How infinitely wicked is it to then steal from God? To take what is His. Steal from anybody. Who wouldn't steal from him? So we arrived at the fifth of six disputations. We said that the book of Malachi is divided into six sort of what we call disputations or discourses where God makes a statement, the people question that statement, and then God explains and sort of applies what he's talking about to his people. And so here in the sixth disputation, God makes his assertion in verse 7. We're going to come back to verse 6. In verse 7, he says, From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes, from the law, from the covenant law that, that is uh, between us that I have given you. And he says, and, you're not, and you've not kept it. And then he says, Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But he says, It's been some time now, from the time your fathers did, it's been some time now that, that you, the God's people, we could say the church in the Old Testament, God's people have turned aside, they're breaking his commands, they're not being obedient. And then the second part of God's assertion is a promise, which is a beautiful thing. Because then he says, if you return to me, I will return to you. If you come back to me, you will find my arms open wide for you. But then verse 7 ends with the people's question, right? The disputation is back and forth, but... But how shall we return? He said, if you return to me, I'll return to you. How shall we return? What would that look like for us to return to you? What exactly are you saying to us? So in verse 8, God answers this assertion, and he asks, Will a man rob God? Who would dare? Right, that's kind of the next question. Would a man rob God? Who would dare to rob God? And yet, he says, and yet, you are robbing me. You are stealing from me. 
It's certainly a startling accusation, as I said. They sound a little surprised, it seems like, as it goes on in verse 8. And they ask in the, in the second sort of a dialogue going on, how have we robbed you? What does that look like? How do you steal from God? How do you break into His house? Like, how do you get access to His house? How is it exactly that I have, that we have robbed you? How did we pull this off? And God responds in verse 8. And He says, in your tithes and your offerings. He says, you've robbed me in your tithes and your offerings. He says, you are withholding from me what is rightfully You're keeping what is mine. Now, what is the law of the tithe? He says, you know, your tithes and contributions. Now, the law and the tithe, in some ways, is complicated because if different people, they look at the Old Testament and they talk about what does the tithe look like. And actually, they say, some people will say there's actually two or three tithes. A couple of them were annual from the annual income. And then every third year, there was another tithe of three years. Some people have actually calculated that when you do all the tithes, there's something like 25% that the Lord was asking from His people in various ways that they contributed to the life of the church. But we'll keep it very simple. And in times where He comes in the most basic tithe, like in Leviticus 27, He says, A tithe of everything belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. A tithe of everything. The word tithe is a, in the Hebrew is a Hebrew word, and it literally means a tenth. It literally means ten percent. So he is saying that, that a tithe of everything, of all of your income, of whatever the Lord provides you in that given time, he says ten percent of it, he says, and the language is very clear, belongs to the Lord. It's holy to me. So that emphasizes that it belongs to the Lord. Emphasize with this, it's holy to me. It belongs exclusively to me. Holy to me means it's set apart for God and nothing else. You would say, like in the temple, you had all the stuff in the temple, the, the golden table and the golden lampstand and the different things, and those were all holy to the Lord. Well, what does it mean that they're holy? They're not, they're not even alive. How, does that, how is it holy? Well, they're holy in the sense that they have been set aside exclusively for the worship of God. And so they were holy in the way that they were set apart. They were part of His worship. And so He says there is 10% of everything that belongs to the Lord in the same kind of way as they think about those things that have been dedicated to God and dedicated to His worship. And He says, they belong to me. They are holy to me. God has established the kingdom of Christ. His, his plan for the temple for its worship, for its upkeep and its worship and the priesthood who served there. He had an economy that was run through the sacrificial giving of his people. Ten percent of whatever God had blessed them with in his economy, ten percent of that was given back. And that's how uh, it was dedicated to the kingdom of God in this world, dedicated to these purposes. And so it belonged to him. It was holy to him. And so he says, literally, when you withhold it, it belongs to me so thoroughly, so absolutely, so clearly, that to withhold it is to actually steal from me something that is mine. 
So what is God's solution? Our solution is in verse 10. He says it's very simple. Bring in the full time. Bring it into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house, that, there, that, that my, my house would have what it needs, that it's provided for. He says, and thereby put me to the test. Right? Bring in the full tithe into the store and there will be sufficient resources for the upkeep of the temple, for what is necessary for the worship of the, of the, of the temple and its services, but also for the upkeep of the priesthood. So, uh, you don't know that in the Old Testament, that when they settled in the land and they, they, you know, bring them across, Joshua brings them in and they finally conquer the land, and the Lord divides the, 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 the territory, there were 12 tribes, and everybody were, it was sliced up and given to the tribes. Everybody got a piece, and that's where you could live and, and then farm and have harvest, and your, it would be your livelihood. You were given land to live on. He said, but he only divided it in ele- by 11. And the 11 tribes got paid. There's one tribe that got no land. And that was the priestly tribe, the, the tribe of Levi. And so in Numbers 18, it says, verses 20 to 21, the Lord said to Aaron, uh, the, the priesthood, you shall have no inheritance in the land. Everybody else is going to get land and, and, a, and a livelihood, a way to make a living and to live, uh, but you shall have no inheritance in your land, neither are you going to have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. You are holy to me in, in, in leading in the temple and worship. And then he says to the Levites, what I give them, I give every tithe in Israel of your inheritance in return for your service that they do the, the service in the tent of meeting. In other words, that 11 of them got a livelihood, and one of them was called to serve in the temple, and then the 10%, the tithe that was given into the temple, then was their inheritance. Instead of having a twelfth of it, they got a tenth of what everybody else was given. It was God's design that they should have no other livelihood, that, that they would minister to the Lord, that it would be full-time there and rotating at the temple, and that their livelihood would be provided. This is God's economy. His people, His church, giving 10% of their income to support and advance His worship and His kingdom. Now, it's proper to say that God owns 100%. He's not asking for all of it back. He gives it for our care and for our sustenance and to support us in our livelihood. He gives 100, 100% they'll belong to Him and is all of us for all that we are and all that we have. And what do we have that we've not been given? That is from His hand and from His grace. And so He says, it's all mine. That 10% of it is to come back in to accomplish my purposes on the earth in regards to the kingdom of God. Now, the first obvious question, let me step then in more lines to the New Testament. The first obvious question is, are Christians supposed to tithe? And it is interesting, and I've read a lot of this through the years, and, um, and it's debatable. It's debatable. It's debatable. Whether the, the, the tithe carries into the New Testament or the New Testament has some new principle, and a lot of people say the principle in the New Testament is generous giving. It's not a specific percentage or whatever, but there's still that expectation to give, but it is now not a law of tithe, but rather a generous I think that there 
think that the, the generous heart is definitely there. What is clear is this. The generous giving of God's people has always funded his work in the world, and that's how he does it. He did it before the law. He did it during the time of Israel and the law. And it's how he did it in the early church and in the New Testament. And it's the way he's done it in the church through the history of our existence. It is, it is God's economy that it is the generous giving of God's people that has always funded his work in the world. So we say before Israel existed, there's an interesting story. It's at least interesting to me as I think about the question of whether the tithe continues. Because it's a principle that we see in... I think we're going to look at here in Genesis that at least shows up. Uh, and it's interesting that it, it's incorporated in the law and that there are indications in the New Testament about giving, but it's also tied into Jesus' priesthood and who he is. So we, we find in the, in the pages of Genesis uh, a story about Melchizedek. He's a priest that shows up. He's, very, he's an enigma. There, there's no indication of a priesthood at this stage of history. God has called Abraham out of his family, and Abraham goes and you know saves his son Lot, and he has a certain amount of plunder. You know he had been prospered in some way, and he bumps into Melchizedek, who's a priest of the Most High God. And Abraham tithes, gives him ten percent of all of his goods. This priest of the Most High God, whose name is Melchizedek. King of righteousness, who's also called the King of Salem, the King of Peace. Where did he come from? Nobody knows. Abraham ties to him, gives him ten percent of everything he owns. Never sees him again. Never mentioned again. Never comes up in the Old Testament anywhere in the world. Not mentioned again until a Psalm, where he's mentioned one time in Psalm one ten, and it seems to be a prophecy. Until you get to Hebrews chapters 5 to 7, where we're told Jesus is a priest of the order of Melchizedek. And his is a different priesthood. He's not in the order of Aaron. And so here you had Abraham, in whom was all of Israel, the father of Israel, tithing to Melchizedek, who's a type of Christ, and, and the chief in his order. There are some postulate that actually Melchizedek is the pre-incarnate Christ. There are various times when the angel of the Lord, we're thought that that casting of the Lord's army is a pre-incarnate Christ who manifests in the work of God in the Old Testament. These are things we don't know. I don't know. I just throw it out there because I find it fascinating that all of Israel in the person of Abraham is tied into the order of Jesus' priesthood, maybe to Jesus himself. There it, there it is, this idea of tithe. Early in the pages of the Bible, it's obviously incorporated in the, in the law of the covenant that God is calling them to obedience to here. But there is some evidence that the practice continues in the New Testament church because it's, it's clear, while it's debatable, and people say, well, there's no specific command to serve these things, and that may be true. But there is some evidence, and it makes me wonder, and so I, I give you my thoughts between you and the Lord and the Scriptures. Uh, but there is evidence for sure that the work of the ministry in the New Testament is supported by the generous giving of God's people. That continues. So in 1 Corinthians 9.13, we read this. The context here is Paul talking about support for his ministry and what it looks like for folks who are doing the New Testament ministry of preaching and traveling and evangelizing and how they get their support. And he says, do you not know 
and those who were employed in the temple serving set their feet on the temple. And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offering. Right? He's reminding them of the law of the time. Right? He's telling the New Testament church, do you not know, right? Do you not know? Do you not remember? This is something you should understand. Those who are employed in the temple service get their feet from the temple. Those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. Those are the priests who shared in, in the tithes, the sacrificial offerings and the food that is given, the 10%, because often the, the tithe was given in, uh, I mean, we see in the New Testament, the second was given in gold, and in here Jesus sits in the temple and washes, and he sees the widow's might, and he's washing them, put coins into the, the coffers of the, in the temples, and he's giving in coin, but a lot of giving in those days was uh, in grain, right, in animals, in, in whatever it is that they were prospered in, they gave. But he's saying that don't don't you see those who served in the temple made their living from the temple. They lived in the temple. Verse 14, he says, in the same way. And this is where I say, you know, is there a command? Is there not a command? It's debatable. You know, I would never be hard and fast. On the other hand, I would say, in the same way. The same way as what? As those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the law of the tithe, the giving of God's people to the temple. He says, in the same way, the Lord commanded, and this is going to be the Lord Jesus Christ. This is New Testament. He's speaking about the, the commands and the expectations on New Testament ministry. He says, in the same way, our Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. In the same way. And it was done in the Old Testament. He says, in the same way, those who minister in the New Testament. In the same way. It's all similar, but not exactly the same, or not exactly the same. I don't know. It's debatable. But I do know this. New Testament ministry is being supported by the giving of God's people and the Lord's command. That the support of the church and its worship and, and its ministries and its evangelization and preaching the gospel, he says, those who proclaim the gospel get their living from it. That the ministry is supported by the giving of God's people. So the question comes back again, do I have to tithe? And I'm going to say, I don't, I don't know. I'm going to say this, though. I would just make sure in my own heart, and this is where I live, that I tithe, that I give, that I give all. Is it up that the question in my heart is it how little can I give as a Christian? If I'm not under the law anymore, am I free to give a lot less? Right? Now there's not this law requirement upon me. Am I now free? And often that's what we what the question drives at. Do I have to tithe? In other words, do I have to give that much? Second Corinthians nine seven, Paul says this. Each of us must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And here are those who make the case, very strong ground, the focus is on the heart, the focus is on the generous heart, the focus is on giving as the heart has decided, and that giving is not reluctant, but it's free and he says, and it's, and it's not under compulsion because, because we love the Lord and we love his kingdom and we love the gospel and we love everything about Jesus and we're building his kingdom against the gates of hell and we 
God invested in that. We are his people. We're the stakeholders of the freedom. If it were a corporation, we're the stakeholders. Right? We're the investors. We're the ones who care about his kingdom. And he says, God loves a cheerful giver. He, God is concerned about the heart of the giver. And that is where the shift in the Old Testament is. Are you keeping the law? Are you doing what you're told? Into the New Testament of where is your heart? What do you love? What makes you happy? Where do you find your joy? You find your joy in the kingdom. You find your joy in what God is doing in the world. You find your joy in being a part of it and being vested in it. I think that it's right. But when I go to give then, and I have these two things, the Old Testament and the New, and, you know, is the tithe, and for me, knowing that the New Testament then, is it emphasizes on a generous heart that freely invests in God's kingdom, then for me, the good place for me to start is I start at 10% of the education. Right? Because that's even under the law, even under compulsion, that's what people gave. It doesn't make sense to me that Christians would give less to support the church and its ministries and its worship and its pastors and its preaching of the gospel and its kingdom and its missionaries and all of those things that God is doing in the New Testament and that Christians would give less than was required under the law. It doesn't make sense to me. To give less than the support in the Old Testament. That Christians would be less invested in what God is doing. And I would say this, what is clear in all of this is that the generous giving of God's people has always funded his work in the world, and that's how God does it. And he was pretty upset, in, at least here in the Old Testament, that his people were not supported, his people were not part of it. It can feel weighty. I'm going to leave there in that whole thing. As I do this, one, it feels self-aggrandizing because I'm the one who works for the church and is supported by the tithes and offerings of God's people. But I believe very strongly in God's Word, and wherever I am, uh, would preach the same sermon. I would preach it as wholeheartedly and participate in the same way that I do now. But the Word can come. Because we're in the Old Testament, the Word comes as... God addressing his people according to the law. He says, you, you, are, you are not, as he said, you're not keeping my statutes, you're not keeping my laws, you have left me, return to me, and I will return to you. So let me turn here in the last couple of minutes and just give uh, three encouraging things, three encouraging things text as we try to take not just whatever rebuke the Lord has given to his people, but the encouragement that he's given to his people here and in the Old Testament. It can feel rather weighty. But at the same time, in the first encouragement, I would want us to notice that in the same breath that he rebukes the sin and failure of his people to obey his law, right, in the same breath he gives them promises and he invites them to trust him. Right, verses 10 to 12, even as he has said all of these things, and he says, bring in the full time. Put me to the test, says the Lord. See if I will not open up the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need of it. I will rebuke the devourer for you. I will 
you know, anything that is keeping back your ability to meet your own needs and to produce a harvest, I will, I will rebuke the devourer so that he will not destroy the fruits of your soil, that you will be fruitful, and your vine in the field it will not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will look upon you and call you blessed, because they see how God provides for you. And so even as he comes with the rebuke, he comes in and he says, really, it is a, it's a lack of your trust in me to provide your needs. Test me in this. Test me that if you do obey my word and see that if I am not a good and faithful God, and if I won't meet all of your needs, enter this image of opening the windows of heaven, and out of the window comes pouring, he says, a blessing upon his people until there's no more need, until your needs are met. Because when you're faithful and obedient, I too am faithful to meet your needs. I'm not calling you beyond what I can care for. In other words, you cannot outgive God. You can never be more generous than God Himself. And that anything we give, He has already given to us. And even as we give, He promises to supply our needs and to take care of us. Jesus says a similar thing, Matthew 6.33, He says, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Remember what all the things are? What you will eat, what you will wear. You know, all the basic needs that, that, that we have. He says, you know, don't I take care of the creation? Don't, I, don't you trust me to take care of you? He says, seek first the kingdom of God and I will take care of those needs. I will provide for you. I am good and faithful. Even as I call you, I will supply you. Give. And he's, what he's saying is, I will give you what you need to give. I will supply it to you. This is what he says in 2 Corinthians 9. God loves the church of God. And God is able to make all graces. So we said that, you know, we ended with that. What does it come after when he says God loves the church of God? Is that God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound or overflow in every good work. He supplies seed for the sower bread for food and will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. He's saying basically the same thing that he said right here in terms of rebuking the devourer and making sure your seed doesn't fail and it's bear fruit. And he says, trust me in this. Trust me in this. Be obedient and see if your God is faithful. Second encouragement is an invitation to return to him. And the promise that I will return to you. We're working backwards now in verse 7. He says, return to me and I will return to you. And that return to him is, is an obedience. He says, we tend to put love for God in one category. And obedience and, and doing uh, the right thing that he calls us to in a totally separate category. And when it comes to our salvation, there is a sense in which that is absolutely true and right. We're saved by grace and not by works. But the scripture doesn't separate the scripture says those who are saved by faith. In other words, faith, you're saved by faith alone, but then the scripture will say basically that faith is never alone. That it produces a harvest of righteousness in the lives of its people. And in the scripture holds these two things together. As he calls us to return, is a call to obedience to his word. And these things belong together. They ask, how, we, how shall we return? And his answer is a call to obedience. 
And he says, will you return to me into a life of obedience? And you might say into a life of following Jesus, doing what he says, relying on the Lord your God. Do not do this yourself. And so he calls us to this life of obedience and says that when you return to me, I return to you. What it's saying is that love, to love the Lord your God is with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. In other words, he's saying you love him with your whole life. All of who you are, all that you have, right, is how we love him. Galatians 3, 19 and 20 says a similar thing that he's saying here. If you remember, sometimes we often use this verse in Revelation 3.20 in evangelism, and I'm not saying that that would probably apply there, but it's being taken out of a letter to the church. Revelation 3 is a letter to the church, calling the church the same thing that Malachi is doing. Jesus is writing a letter to the church, calling them to obedience. And he says this, Those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline, so be zealous and repent. Return to me. Turn back to me. Begin to do those things that you know are right and true and honor me. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and he will sup with him and he will sup with me. And he's saying, what? Return to me and I will return to you. Open the door and I will come in and there will be a feast together that we will share. The third encouragement is that he says this, I do not change. Right, this is verse 6. I skipped this when we were unpacking the verses. And that's because this applies really to the entire letter. It cut into all the disputations and discourses that he's been talking about. In, in every one of these, the Lord is saying, I do not change, and therefore you, O children of Jacob, you, O Israel, you, O church, do not change. I don't change. So you are not consumed. In fact, it's the opposite. You will be blessed and will thrive under his love and his grace. What he's saying is that my love makes you safe. It takes us back to the very first dissertation, if you remember, in verse, chapter 1, verse 2, where he says, his first assertion is, I have loved you. I have loved you. I have chosen you. Right? You are mine. And what he's saying here, and it applies there as it does here, and I do not change. I have loved you and I don't change. It means his love for you is steadfast and everlasting. Right? It's the context in which this all comes. God is faithful even when we're not faithful. It's safe to return to him, and he calls us to return because he doesn't change and he has loved us. Right? Like the prodigal, when he comes home, he finds the arms of the Father open. If you return to me, a ring on his finger and his father's house. God is faithful. He loves his people. There is mercy. There is grace. There is faithfulness. There is forgiveness. There is a steadfast covenant love. I have loved you. I have chosen you. You are mine. It's safe to return him and it's safe for him to speak and to discipline. That's what he says in Revelation. Those I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous and repent. What he says in Hebrews chapter 12, God is treating you as sons. But what son is there that his father does not discipline? He disciplines us for our good that we will share. 
there in His holiness from the moment to the moment. All discipline may seem painful. It may seem weighty. It may be hard to hear. But it's not always pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who are being trained. Because He loves His people. He is sanctifying us. He is leading us toward maturity and toward wholeness and toward holiness. To be fully invested in Him. Heart, soul, mind, and strength in Him and His kingdom. What are you doing in the world? Thank you for your word that is living and true. Oh, I ask that you would unclench our clenched fists when it comes to ourselves. If you would give us cheerful hearts that love you and your kingdom, such that where our heart is, so that our treasure will be. Father, we thank you that you love us so much. You don't leave us where you found us, but that you call us to obedience. You call us to follow Jesus. You call us to a life of holiness. And you come near by your Spirit and empower us and lead us into the life that is pleasing to you. Help us to walk so close to you and so full of your Spirit that all these things are gifts. 